0: leader to glorify himself. Over and over again, we're going to see this same idea, that God uses flawed individuals to lead his chosen people. And so as we turn to Judges chapter 6, we're going to see that same thing happen once again. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the ability to come and to study your word and to see what it has to say for us we pray that as we uh, hear your word that we would seek to make changes that are necessary in our lives in your name we pray amen so judges chapter 6 once again begins very similar to every other major narrative thing we've seen so far when you saw the book of judges begin it began with an introduction which makes perfect sense then you get to Othniel Othniel has a nation that is sinning they sin, God punishes, they cry out to God, God delivers. We're going to see that same pattern here in Judges chapter 6. In Judges chapter 6, verse 1a, you see that Israel is once again sinning. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God does not allow punish, or sin to just go, and he chooses to punish it. Okay? And he does the same thing in our lives as well. God chastens the one he loves. He punishes those who are his children whom he loves. And he's going to punish the nation of Israel. Yahweh punishes the nation in verse 1b all the way through verse 5. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming up in, a numerous, in as numerous as loc- locusts but they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. And so the punishment is that they're serving Midian for seven long years. Every time Israel plants their crops, when it gets to be about harvest time, the Midianites come in from the east with their allies, and they just raid this ter- uh, the countryside, and they just destroy everything. So that there's nothing left in Israel, and the Israelites have to enter camps. Um, dens and uh, mountains to be able to save their own souls and so God is seriously harshly rebuking and punishing these people for their sin but once again you see the pattern over and over again Israel eventually cries out to God in verse 6 so verse 6 so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and what did they do And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out, they repented, they acknowledged their sinfulness, they acknowledged that they had offended a holy God, and they told God that they were wanting to change. And how does God respond to their repentance? Yahweh sends a prophet in verses 7 through 10. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, Obeyed me, my voice. So God comes and He rebukes the nation. But God's not just done. God's not just rebuking them and, well, adios. He's going to come and He's going to act on their behalf. He's going to anoint Gideon to come and deliver the nation from the oppressors, the Midianites. And you're going to see that in verses 11 through 32, where Gideon is chosen as a deliverer. And he's chosen in a marvelous way. If you remember, Ophniel had the Spirit of God anoint him, right? Ehud did not have that. Deborah did not have that. Barak did not have that. So Gideon is getting something really special we're going to see. He's chosen, handpicked by the Lord to be the deliverer of the nation. Verses 11 through 24, we see that Yahweh gets a skeptic's attention verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abrizah, Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. It's interesting. Gideon's name means hacker, or thrasher. He's sitting there beating this stuff, and that's what his name means. It's really fun. But he's, he's hiding in a winepress doing the job that should be done not in a wine press because he's hiding from the enemy. And so you got to understand this. This guy is hiding in a wine press, taking care of a little bit of wheat so that he can hopefully care for his family. And it's interesting the words that the Lord is going to use to refer to this man that is hiding. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. There's a little bit of irony there, right? Like, He hasn't accomplished anything militarily, and yet God is saying, you are chosen. You are going to accomplish something great for me, right? And you would expect that he would act, right? You would expect that he'd be like, excellent, let's go take care of these people. I'm hiding in a wine press because we don't have food. And God has anointed me specially to take care of my nation. Let's go do this. Verse 13. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Already you see a very hesitant Gideon, don't you? God comes and tells him, you're chosen to be a great warrior for me and a man of valor. And he's like, I don't know about this, Lord. Because um, <laughs> have you seen what's going on here? Like, this is not prosperous. These are not the promises that we've heard about from Egypt. This is something completely different. Obviously, Yahweh has forsaken us. And I'm not sure I really want to be associated with you, whoever you are. I'm not sure who you are even. Okay? Okay. And so he's he's a skeptic. Verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Once again, a reaffirmation. I have sent you. And his response. So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. God, you you really don't understand. The the, the sub-tribe that, you know, I'm part of Manasseh, and then the little clan that's inside Manasseh, it's the smallest one in all of Manasseh, and I'm the the most lowly guy in that clan. So, like, you've got the wrong guy. Go find somebody else. It's very much like Moses, right? When Moses is told by God that he's going to deliver the nation out of Egypt, he's like, no, I'm not your guy, okay? He's very hesitant. Verse 17, then he said to him, if, I now, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. Lord, if it's really you, let me give you an offering, and let's see how... You respond to an offering. And then, then I'll believe you, then I'll act. Then I'll go into battle for you, and I'll, I'll do battle royal for you, right? That's what he's saying. It's not going to be what he's going to do, but that's what he's saying. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, that took a while probably, and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. That's a lot of flour, okay? That's not like the five barley loaves that we looked at earlier today. This is a lot of flour, like, this is, like, you could feed a lot of people with the amount of food that he's bringing. Uh, an ephah, of flour, The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff, that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight just like that how do you like that Gideon and and you and I are kind of like you know if God did that I would do anything God wanted me to do and unfortunately it's probably not quite that true because all too often we're just like Gideon God gives us direct instructions, right? There are pretty clear things that we are supposed to be doing, and yet we fail to perform them on a fairly regular basis. Don't raise your hand, but when was the last time you shared the gospel message with someone? Was it yesterday? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it this year? do you faithfully spend time in prayer for your fellow church members do you faithfully spend time in scripture do you faithfully seek to find ways to be actively involved in ministering to the body of believers through other means these are clear things that we should be involved in and we haven't even touched areas of sin like losing our temper with our spouse or losing our temper with our kids or all the other different things that we fail to accomplish and do like we should and those are fairly clear things that God has said be angry and sin not doesn't get much more clear and yet we are hesitant and and we can look down on Gideon and think well he's so hesitant why doesn't he do what God wants him to do and yet in many ways we are very much like him Verse 22, still under the section where God is winning over a skeptic, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. That's, that's a good perception. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon is frightened that he's going to be struck dead. He's just seen God. Right? He's just seen Yahweh. And he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And what happens? The Lord responds to him and says, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace, or the idea is, The Lord is my friend. To this day, it is in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Gideon led by taking a step of worship, right? Gideon did lead by taking a step of worship. He just made an altar to the living God. And it's still there at the time of this writing. That's a good first step, to begin worshiping in some way. And yet, Gideon is still hesitant at various times as we continue to look. Gideon then begins to take small steps of faith. Gideon's built the altar. He goes to bed that night. Verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bowl and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the image, which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. He obeys. He even obeys immediately, right? Because he was told to do it that night and he did it that night. But what was his motive for doing it at night? It wasn't, you know, to delay is to disobey. That wasn't what you know, he's not thinking Patch the Pirate and, you know, I got to do this right now because if I don't do it right now, I'm disobeying. His idea is this is daddy's altar. This is daddy's Baal. This is daddy's Asherah and daddy's special place for worshiping his God, Baal. And the whole town worships Baal too. And I'm not going to do this when everybody can see. You continue reading on in verse 28 through 32 and you begin to learn more details. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being uh, offered on the altar which was has been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image, that is the Asherah, that was beside it. And what does Joash say? Joash says, but Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore on that day he called him Drupal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. His dad says, If Baal's really God, He should come and kill my son himself. Baal has a problem with my son. Let Baal deal with my son. And so he renames Gideon. Let Baal contend with him. Okay? So you you begin to see these small steps. But even though it's a a small step, it's still a small step because he's doing it at night because he's afraid of the crowd. And as we think about what does this what does this mean for us, I think that we need to be removing objects of faith that are illegitimate in our own life, and, and preferably not removing these objects of faith. If you if you think that um, working a second job will provide all your needs in your family, and it could be that you need to work a second part time job, I'm not saying don't ever work a part time job, but if you have all your needs provided for and you are working a second job because you're depending upon that to provide for your needs because you've placed your faith in that instead of God. Then get rid of the second job because it's drawing you away from something that is higher, something that is better. That's what Gideon did. He went and he took care of things. He didn't do it as well as we would like to see, he's a hesitant leader. He doesn't lead like he's supposed to. Part of the book's purpose is to show us what not to do as we are leaders, as we take leadership roles. But then we see Gideon is tested in the battle. And that starts in verse 33, and it goes all the way through chapter 7, verse 33. Verse 33 through 35, you see that they are gathering for battle, okay? Gideon has just been told by God, you are a valiant warrior. You have an extremely important place in God's plan for the nation Israel. You're going to accomplish great things, right? And Gideon's like, I don't know about this, but let's see what you'll do with my offering, and then maybe I'll do what you want me to do. So God burns up his offering, and then God tells him, tear down the bale and the Asherah. And he does it. He's still hesitant because he does it at night instead of day. That's what verse uh, 27 tells us. And now there's a battle brewing, okay? Verse 33, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the Eats, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, Okay? He's anointed by the Spirit. This is something only we've seen in Othniel and Gideon. You don't see this phrase referred to about Ehud. You don't see it referred to about Deborah or Barak. This is something special. This is something unique. And what does he do with it? Then he blew the trumpet and the Abirazites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. The nation gathers for battle. And and you would expect that, having seen all that he's seen, he's going to charge into battle and win, right? But that's not what you see on the evening of the battle. Verses 36 through 40 describe Gideon's doubt. Of God's plan. Gideon doubts God's plan. Verse 36, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. God, you're, 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 <laughs> you're telling me yourself you're taking the offering and accepting that and telling me in an audible way that I won't die because I've seen you face to face. That just doesn't cut it. Please make the wool wet and the ground dry. And then I will go into battle and do battle for you. Verse 38, and it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. But on all the ground let there be dew, and God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And and once again, we look at this and we're like, why is he so hesitant? Why doesn't he just act for God? And I think part of it is, he's grown up worshiping Baal. Who is Baal? Baal is the storm god, the god of rain and dew. And so he's asking God to prove to him once again that he is indeed the true God and that Baal is not. It's not justified. He is a hesitant leader. He's in the hall of faith. It's amazing. He's in the hall of faith. Hebrews 11 elevates him as someone who is a model of faith. And yet Up to this point, there has been very little admirable about Gideon. Very little. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7, God tells Gideon that his army is too large. Then Jerubabal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, arose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. That's something that you don't normally hear generals saying. You know, there's too many people here. We're not going into battle with this many. We've got to have less people. That's what God's telling him. And God gives him the reason. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore... Proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. This was something that was commanded in the Mosaic Law. If you were getting ready to go into battle as the nation Israel, and there were fearful men in your midst, you were supposed to send them home. This was something that was in the law. This is a good thing. So he sends them home. But the army is still too large. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps." He shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go every man to his place the explanation about the whole lapping and the kneeling is extremely confusing and nobody really knows exactly what's going on here it appears that the lapping people are not like uh, because uh if you look at verse six it says that the people that lap are using their hand okay dogs don't have hands to lap with their hands they lap with their tongues okay so th- there's something that's difficult to understand about this text. A- and so we don't know. It seems that the people that used their hands um, were the ones who were chosen. That's quite clear. Um, why they chose them is not clear. Some people suggest that uh, the people that got on their knees uh, were the ones who were um, not very careful, and they weren't very astute. Um and, and so that's why God chose the others because they were like drinking like this so they could watch. Other people think that um, those who were uh, drinking like a dog were the less efficient commanders because they're drinking like our uh, soldiers. And so God was selecting the uh, worse soldiers because uh, the people that would be on their knees couldn't be drinking water that was at their knee level if they were on their knees. So it's very difficult to know exactly who was chosen and why they were chosen. What is important, though, is that the 300 people who lapped with their hands somehow were the ones who were chosen, and God chose only the 300 out of the 10,000 soldiers that were left to go into battle. Verses 9 through 14, Yahweh encourages Gideon once more, okay? So God has told Gideon numerous times that he's sent him. God's spirit has come and anointed Gideon. And you would expect and I would expect that Gideon is going to do something marvelous at this point, right? Not so. Not so. God's going to once again come alongside Gideon and encourage him because he is a hesitant leader. He does not lead like he should. Verse 9. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And by what he does next, we know that Gideon probably should have been one of the people that left, right? Because earlier the question was, those who are afraid should s- leave, not stay. Gideon stayed, but he's afraid because he goes down into the camp. Uh, verse 11. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianite and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous lo- as locusts, And their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. I mean... These are little barley loaves, kind of like we were talking about earlier today, okay? They're little things. And he's saying that this little tent rolled into the camp and hit the tent and fell down. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream that is, and its interpretation that he worshipped. He worshipped. This is the second time And the last time we will see Gideon worshiping the living and true God. You will not see another reference to Gideon worshiping throughout the rest of the narrative. He worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And I've gone a little too far. But it is interesting, isn't it, that God has heard it numerous times from the Lord, that the Lord is going to use him. God has given him various signs of burning up the offering. God has given him the sign of making the fleece dry and then the fleece wet, or the other way around, the fleece wet, then the fleece dry. And he's rejected all those things, and then he finally hears it from one of the enemies, and he's like, yeah, now I believe it, and he's going to go into battle. It's kind of ironic. So Be- Gideon begins to act. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the 300 men into three compa- companies, 100 each, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches beside the pitches. And he said to them, Look at me and do, the, do likewise. Watch when I come to the edge of the camp and shall and you shall do as i do when i blow the trumpet i and all who are with me then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the lord and give of gideon so gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch this is probably the time of the change in the guard that's what's referred to here the middle watch just as they had Uh, posted the watch and they blew the trumpet and broke the pitchers so there's confusion in the camp you can imagine Joe your roommate from your camp you know you're a Midianite soldier Joe's sneaking in because he's just got off watch and then all of a sudden there's all this noise around you from the blowing of the trumpets and the breaking of pitchers and people are sneaking into your tent at the middle of the night it freaked them out and they started killing each other you keep reading you'll see that um They blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands, verse 20. Then the the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You can imagine why the Midianites thought they'd been routed. Because they're hearing people walking through their camp that have just got off the guard. And they're going back to get some rest before the morning. And all of a sudden, people are screaming the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and there's lots of noise and trumpets and pitchers and lots of fires all around them, and they're freaking out, and they just start stabbing anybody that they can find. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpet, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to beth Acacia toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Al-Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then verses 24 through verse eight, uh, 21, you have here the wrapping up. So the, the, the army has been routed, but that doesn't mean that the nation of Israel has been fully delivered yet. So Gideon is going to wrap up all the little loose ends that he's left after his great victory. Verses 24 through 8, verse 3. Ephraim now enters the fight. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize them. The watering places as far and seized from them the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan and they captured two princes of the Midianites. This is important. They captured Oreb and Zeb. these are princes. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb, they killed at the winepress of Zeb. they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And then the men of Ephraim are angry with Gideon, aren't they? Verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. We didn't get to be included in this. This is very wrong. And what does Gideon say? Gideon is a tactician. He is a politician par excellence here. What is he going to do? He's going to tell them, actually, what you've done is greater than all I've done so he said to them what have I done now in comparison with you is not the gleaning of the grapes the gleaning is what you do after the harvest of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer he's saying the gleanings picking up the loose ends killing the princes is far better than routing the entire army and killing 120,000 people that's just obvious you guys should know that right God has delivered into your hands the princes of Median, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So he dealt with the Ephraimites quite well. Gideon shows leniency to the tribe of Ephraim. Okay? He, doesn't, he doesn't get angry at them. He's going to get angry at some other Israelites pretty soon here. He demonstrates leniency and mercy to these But then how does he deal with the princes? And how does he deal with the towns of Israel that refuse to help him? He does not deal with them in leniency. He is seeking his own honor. He is seeking vengeance. And so his whole motivation is completely off its rocker. It is not honoring to God in any way, shape, or form. Verses 4 through 21. Then Gideon came to the Jordan, he and... The three hundred men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, "Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian." And the leaders of Succoth said, "Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Hey, listen, Gideon. If we give you guys help, and you guys don't actually win this thing," what do you think the kings of Midian are going to come and do to us? I mean, it's, it's a pretty decent question, right? Like, you might think that too if you were you know, on a border with this horrible king that is seeking to kill all the Israelites. You'd probably be like, you know, um, maybe not. It's kind of interesting. Gideon has been hesitant, very, very hesitant up to this point. And this city shows a little bit of hesitancy to him And what does he say in response? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. There's a lot of vengeance and self-seeking honor in Gideon he is not pursuing things to honor God in any way shape or form it is all about him and that will become more and more clear as you see his conversation with the kings of Midian when he captures them verse 10 now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Kharkov and their armies with them about 15,000 all who were left of all the army of the people of the east for one hundred and twenty thousand men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jokbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. Then Zeba and Zalmunna fled. He pursued them and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he routed the whole army. Then Gideon the son of Joash returned from battle from the ascent of Harris, and he caught a young man of the city of Succoth. And interrogated him, and he arose, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, twenty or seventy-seven men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me. Nothing about the Lord, right? You ridiculed me. Saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. He killed them. Then he tore down the tower of Benuel and killed the men of the city there. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, now you're going to, to see his vengeance that he's taking out on these people. Why is he pursuing these people? He's not pursuing them because God wants him to. I think God did want him to pursue them, but that's not why he's actually doing what he's doing. His motivation is self-seeking. And he said to Ziba and Zalmona, verse 18, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. And the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise, you yourself, and kill us. For a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Gideon is motivated by vengeance and his own honor. He is not, at this point, at all motivated by who God is. He worshipped God before the battle and he worshipped God when God first revealed to him and burnt the offering that he presented to him. But at this point, the idea of God and worshipping God is very, very, very far from Gideon's mind. He is seeking his own honor and his own glory. And he is a very hesitant leader who has become a relatively bad leader at this point. He's seeking his own vengeance and his own self honor and it's going to get worse as we continue to read Gideon rejects the crown verses 22 through 27 then the men of Israel said to Gideon rule over us both you and your son and your grandson also for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian they come to him and they say you be our king you're obviously truly great and what does he Say in response to this. Gideon said to them, "I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you; the Lord shall rule over you." That's a good response, isn't it? That that, that is a good response. If only Gideon had truly meant it and had not just used words to say it, because his his future actions and his son's future actions show that that is not how he lived. He may not have actually had the title king, but he lived in every single way as if he did have the title king. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. I want a royal treasury without the title king. That'll do me just fine. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give you them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the way to the gold earrings that he had requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. Just the earrings is probably around $800,000 to $900,000 worth of gold in today's economy. This was a lot of wealth that he accumulated. A lot of wealth. He had a king's treasury, but he denied the title king. You continue to read on. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Gideon denies the throne with his words, but not with his actions. And you're going to see this point once again come up in the next, the concluding section. Is there peace or trouble? The text says that there's rest for 40 years. But what is coming on the horizon? Is it peaceful? Or is it something very, very bad? And it is something very, very bad. Peace is restored. That's what verse 28 says. We just read that. Verse 29. Trouble is in the horizon. Verses 29 through 31. Then Jerubabal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine was in Shechem. Also bore him a son whose name Gideon called Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? Abimelech means my father is king. He named his son, my father is king. And his son is bad news. Son is very bad news. We'll see about that next week. Gideon's actions show that he might have denied the status of king, but he is very far from where he was after his initial encounter with God. He is very far from that. And it's been just little steps along his life that have led him now to the place where he sets up an ephod and the nation whores after it and it becomes a snare to them and to him. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So um, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, Gideon is living in defiance to the uh, teaching that is there, Genesis. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So he denies the title And yet he does all the things that would point to the idea that he is a king among all the other nations. He has multiple wives. He gets lots of money. Okay, Not that having lots of money is bad, but he is pursuing it as if he was a king. And then Gideon dies in verse 32. And so what does this all mean? God is working in the trials of our life. Isn't that awesome? Gideon is a horribly flawed, hesitant leader who starts off somewhat good, but by the end of his life, none of us want to be Gideon. Not one of us wants to be Gideon at the end of his life. And yet God is using him, and he's using this flawed individual, and he's working through the trials that come. And he delivers the nation. God is working in the midst of the trials of our life. Plan to accomplish God's will. If if you know that God wants you to do something, do it and do it without delay. Don't wait to do something that you know that you should be doing. Don't be a hesitant leader like Gideon. When you know that God wants you to do something, do it and do it without delay. And then finally, give glory to God when you are successful. The last time we see it recorded that Gideon worshipped was before he received the honor and glory that came from a marvelous military victory. It's far better to honor and to glorify God instead of living for our own selves. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, look into your word and to look at the life of Gideon. We pray that we would uh, not be hesitant leaders, but that we would seek to honor and to glorify you as you would have us, de- as you desire. And in your name we pray. Amen.